Thank you, Mike. You're welcome. Thank you for a warm welcome. Just wanted to say I will be back in the seminar room where we had the seminar after the service and be able to talk with you as long as you'd like to talk there. I want to speak to you this morning about passion, about God-given passion. And the story goes of a couple in an assisted living facility. Both of their spouses had died and they got close together and the man decided he was going to ask the woman to marry him. So he took her out to dinner and asked her and all of a sudden the next morning he woke up in a little bit of shock. He couldn't remember what took place so he called her on the phone and he said, uh, I know I took you out to dinner last night. I know you asked, I asked you to marry me but I can't remember what you said. And she said, I'm so glad you called. I said yes but I couldn't remember who I said yes to. Desire, imagination, creativity, energy, drive, these are all the things, all the virtues that are connected with passion. And God has placed within every one of us the innate passion to reflect his glory and to accomplish important things for his kingdom. And we see this passion operating in many different spheres. If you look back in Christian history, we see George Whitfield, who crossed the Atlantic 13 times and went up and down the 13 colonies preaching the gospel and establishing churches. And he set the moral and spiritual culture that created the American Revolution. Without it, it would not have happened. Then there's David Livingston, crisscrossing the African continent as a medical missionary, bringing the gospel to thousands in the 19th century. He said, if you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. Livingston was found dead kneeling in prayer. And of course, in our scripture for today, we remember the life of Paul and his missionary journeys, which were filled with opposition, persecution, exhaustion, shipwreck, jail, and ultimately martyrdom. And he talked about the energy that God mightily inspires within him. But there are also ordinary people who demonstrate God's passion every day. Artists, teachers, builders, those who create businesses and technologies. Without energy, without drive, little gets accomplished in this life. We see it in the beginning of life. Uh, we have a wonderful little granddaughter, 16-month-old, named Willow. I call her the human wind-up toy. You put her on the ground and off she goes. And when she doesn't have anything to do, she swings her arms just because she can. We also see it at the end of life the 90-year-old woman in a nursing home who prays one hour a day for missionaries throughout the world. That also involves passion. We see it in the mother who holds the infant in her arms, wondering and praying about what that child could become, or the music teacher who sees promise in his or her students as they learn and grow. We see it in those who show compassion to the needy, the lost, and the hurting. But there can be no compassion without passion the passion to care, the passion to act, the passion, passion to listen. You see, God planned it that way, and it brings him glory. In Genesis 1 and 2, we find the world as it was meant to be. Adam and Eve worked together in the garden. 
Now we have this image of Adam and Eve that this is sort of a peaceful, bucolic place, little garden. They're sitting around in lawn chairs, drinking herbal tea, not doing much. But the opposite is the case. The garden is vast. My wife and I had a chance to go out west. We drove to Victoria, British Columbia. Had any of you ever seen the Bouchard Gardens? This vast garden. There's 250 employees who tend this garden full time. That's more of the garden that I imagine. It's a, a day's walk in the Garden of Eden. And they're overseeing plants and they're naming them and they're naming animals and they're cultivating and tending the Garden of God with passion. You see, very little is accomplished in this world without passion, a passion that brings glory to God. Irenaeus, an early church father, said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, not just biological existence, but zoe, life abundant, the unmistakable mark and presence of God. God is invested in our passion, yours and mine. And as Jesus walked the road of his passion, he demonstrated, he said, the zeal for thy house will consume me. And so it did. God is invested in passion, yours and mine, and he's designed it to bring glory to his name. But there is a very big problem. It defines the battle, the defining battle of our generation and of our lives as long as we live. And that is that there is an enemy who cannot stand the fact that God-ordained passion, energy, and vitality is the mark of God's presence. As Eric Little said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And so because God-ordained passion brings glory to God, and that is something the enemy wants to steal for himself, he moves to distort it to steal it. Just as he did with Adam and Eve, he works through our old nature, our desire to control and become our own master to work destruction. And every bit of destruction in the world you see is because of that impulse. In Genesis 3, he tempted Adam and Eve to question God's love, doubt God's provision, and refuse God's way. And so he works through our inner vulnerabilities the mixture that comes with the gift of freedom now distorted to both and dis distort and destroy passion. Jesus called him the thief. He said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now some of us had our passion stolen from us early in life. So much so that even the word passion produces doubts, fears, and questionings in our mind. Some of us were abused and as a result, shut down inside, living the rest of our lives in a passionless world. Someone in authority told us not to hope for something. Don't do that, don't try that, don't experiment, don't reach beyond your grasp, just settle. And so something died inside of us. Or we were just starting to lift our heads and get going and dream and someone nipped it in the bud. A father left or was an absent presence in our lives. The thief took from us what was God's gift and our inheritance. 
Perhaps our promise was given to someone else, a brother or a sister, a favored fair-haired child that was not us. The book of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And so our hope languished, our passions ceased, and our hearts became sick. But the gospel of Jesus gives us back the right to become sons and daughters of the king. Once a king and queen of Narnia, always a king and queen of Narnia. And so we are reborn into the place of provision so we can go very much into the throne room of God crying, Abba, Father. And so what we're looking for, which is this connection in life, this divine connection with God and our true selves is given back to us. It's reclaimed as our God-given heritage. But to say the full of experiences, experience of this, the full possession of it experientially is easy and quick would be false. For the one whose passion was stolen, Dan Allender, the psychotherapist, describes it as more like climbing down a steep and treacherous ravine and using every climbing tool at our disposal to climb up and out on the other side. But we have to go through it and not around it. And if that is you today, I pray that you will take the risk of healing in this area and ask for help so that through this, God can restore your passion that was stolen. For others of us, and this is our focus today, the thief comes to kill our passion by chaining it to our character defects. You see, all addictions are passion killers. They tell us on the front side that they will enhance and give us passion, but ultimately they are passion and life killers. Drugs, alcohol, lust, pornography, eating disorders, and the like. They ultimately feed resentment, jealousy, envy, and fear, causing our God-given energy to dissipate in a cloud of confusion and darkness. You see, the enemy cannot create passion. Only God can. And so that what is left to the enemy is to distort it in order to try to kill it. So he takes religious folks and makes them hyper-involved, unhappy, duty-bound, and humorless, denying the very birthright and the very passion that God has given them. He takes secularists and makes them self-satisfied mockers filled with contempt. And in the case of Saul of Tarsus, he took a man of the Torah and turned him into a self-righteous control freak, obsessed with what other people were doing, persecution, and even murder. So we have to understand that the one thing the enemy cannot stand is the glory of God being manifest. And so when God is about to do something new, a slaughter of the innocents often occurs. It can occur to us experientially at the beginning of life, but it also occurred in Moses when Moses was born. And the very redemption plan of God was cast out in a basket on the Nile and the slaughter of the innocents occurred. And then it occurred again when Jesus was born, another slaughter of the innocents to try to nip it in the bud before it could get growing. In my own experience, the enemy had 10 years of working on me in the lust and pornography area before Jesus even began 
his work of redemption. You see, Saul of Tarsus was a man who started well. He experienced the best education and training could buy. He was Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and Oxford, all thrown into one. Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. The tribe of Benjamin, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, the best teacher. But somehow, Saul of Tarsus bought the lie that he was now the arbiter of all that he surveyed. Isn't it amazing that people came later to Paul and they said, somebody's naming the name of Christ. And he said, you know, I don't really care. Let Christ be named here and there and everywhere, and he'll be glorified. Big change. But the law he studied before his conversion never touched his heart. And when, then, when this Jesus movement called The Way arose, and many Jews started following after the resurrected Messiah, Saul's character defects got lit up. His control issues, his self-righteousness issues got lit up. Perhaps the conversion of many priests, as it says in the book of Acts, many priests became obedient to the faith. That was the last straw, we don't know. But his distorted passion became unhinged. Did you ever wonder why Paul never heeded the words of his own teacher, Gamaliel? This is what Gamaliel said. You remember from the book of Acts. He said, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, these Christians, and let them alone for this plan or this undertaking is of man. It will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Great wisdom in that. And it says, so they took his advice, but not Saul of Tarsus. You see, he wasn't listening anymore. He was too self-righteous, too controlling, too busy breathing out threats. He's like Frodo in the ring who can no longer hear because the drunk with power, he can only respond to the power of the ring. Paul's religion had become distorted and hateful. And as he ran through his murderous regime, he must have thought, am I beyond hope? Have I gone off the wrong track? Maybe in that long ride on a horse from Jerusalem to Damascus, when the noise of the crowds and the bustle of the city was fading, the thoughts of another life began to dawn on him. But I want to say to you today, no matter what you have done, God will never give up on you. If God can save a murderous, wrong-headed Saul of Tarsus, he can save us no matter what we have done. As the old hymn says, that soul though all hell shall endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. So in this part of the story, no doubt the enemy thinks he has, he has won. Just like when Jesus was hanging on the cross and his movement was, appeared to be utterly defeated. So now the enemy believes he has won in the life of Paul. He thinks he has stolen, killed, and ultimately destroyed the purposes of God in Paul's life. Have you ever felt like that? 
Have you ever felt like you've gone too far, that God can't forgive that? Or in the life of your child or somebody you know who's been under it, that all hope is gone? I tell you, that is when God starts to work. That is when God, who raises the dead, begins to do his thing. Paul spoke about this experience later on. He said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And what was the purpose of that? Paul says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope. In 1993, my life had totally collapsed. And driving down in a car from Jacksonville to Clearwater, in the midst of sobs, God spoke to me and he said, everything will be okay. It was against all circumstance, and yet I believed him. I believed him, and so can you. Winston Churchill once said, there is nothing more exhilarating in life than being shot at without result. It is the realization that God is making a new beginning, that there is more to be done, that he is not finished with us. And there is no greater experience of God's power than arriving at the bottom and finding that underneath are the everlasting arms, that at the bottom of the dark hole there is light beaming up from below. God is a God who raises the dead. Have we even begun to contemplate what that means? Despite all human effort, despite all human wisdom, that's why Paul could write that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. He has purposes beyond our human efforts. He takes broken vessels and makes them new. So there were two things that happened to Paul that he could not deny. The first was Stephen's martyrdom. And if you follow that, he preaches a long sermon, hopefully shorter than mine. And he displays the face of an angel. So Stephen's martyrdom showed Paul a faith that he didn't have. And as Stephen asked Jesus to receive his spirit, as he saw him standing to receive him home, it's recorded in Acts that he had the face of an angel. And what a face it was, a face that Paul seemingly could not get out of his mind as he compared his own devilish work with the angelic face of Stephen. When we are at or near the bottom, as Paul was, God does some amazing things when we run out of resources. See, when we get to the text from Galatians, we see that the law was his great resource. He relied on it. It focused on human effort. But the problem is there's a time when all the human efforts run out and we're out of our bag of tricks. And it's at that moment that sometimes God says, okay, now I guess I can go to work. When I was separate from, separated from my wife in 1993, I remember walking across the door of the apartment I was moving into and God said, open the book of Psalms. And I started reading and he spoke to me and he said, now we can do business. Because I'd lived my life with a bag of tricks that were no longer working. 
I bet that when you became a Christian, a real Christian, you met someone and you said to yourself, I want to be like him or her. I would like to have a faith like that. We know that Christianity is first caught and then it is taught. And perhaps on that ro road to Damascus, Paul had thoughts like, I don't have a faith like that when he remembered Stephen. Perhaps he stopped viewing Stephen as the problem and perhaps started viewing him as the solution. And then, bam, Jesus appeared to him. This story of Paul is amazing in the fact that Jesus does not only appear to those who are seeking him. He does not appear only to those who love him or who want him. He appears to his enemies. He appears to perpetrators. He appears to people who have done evil things. Because what Paul lacked was an intimate encounter, a connection with the lover of his soul, the one who loved him. That is why he could write later on for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But the very mark of God's love for us is that while we were still sinners, enemies, perpetrators, opposing him, Christ died for us. That is a surprising event and catalyst for Paul's life. Because there's only one way to escape from stolen or distorted passion, and it is that divine connection with Jesus Christ who forgives, who loves, who redeems, who raises the dead. Augustine wrote, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. So Jesus not only meets the lonely and the wounded and the needy, he also meets those who hate him. Why would he do that? because he loves all people, every single one, and because he receives glory by a life turned around. And even this, he takes the long view. He meets perpetrators because they have passion. And he turns that passion toward himself and toward the kingdom and uses it for his glory and for their greatest joy. So that the testimony is only God could have done this. No one looks at the life of Paul and says, wasn't Paul smart to turn his life around on the road to Damascus? They look at Paul and they see divine intervention. They see radical transformation, so much so that the church in Jerusalem disbelieved it and were fearful to meet and greet him as he rode into Jerusalem. So all this is a prelude to the passage from Galatians for today, where Paul writes, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And goodness knows he tried. And goodness knows so many of us who struggled with addictions have tried. We've tried to be good. We have tried to be better. We've tried to do the right thing, and we have utterly failed until we had an encounter with a living God. 
So let me translate. Paul is saying, I hooked my distorted passion to the law and look where it got me. In many other places in the New Testament, he talks about law produces sin. Law creates awareness of sin. It cannot redeem, it can only accuse. My own willpower wrestled me to the ground. So please understand this, Paul is saying, the law brings conviction, but it can never bring salvation. And knowing the law does no good unless you keep it, and no one can keep it, including me. Trying harder cannot fix your distorted passion. Only Jesus can do that. And then in remarkable honesty, he doesn't say, now that I've been saved and so on, now I'm going to live by the law like I did before. He's saying, no, I'm tempted to go back to it. I'm tempted to trust in the old ways again to define my life by my own righteousness. You see, in any addictive thinking, there's always the temptation to return. All addictive behavior is control-based thinking. And Paul was very familiar with it, and it works for all addicts, if only for a short term. If it didn't, it wouldn't be much of a temptation, would it? But Paul says, no, the futility of the old ways has to die as a way of life every day. That's why in another place he says, having started with the spirit, are you continuing with the flesh? Only Jesus can bring transformation. Only Jesus can raise the dead and bring new life to the believer as well as the unbeliever. He summed it up this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify or zero out the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He says, if I go back to the law, if I go back to human willpower as the basis for my life, I am negating Christ's presence in my life. My independent self tied to the old ways is a futile way of living, and Jesus died to end its reign over me. His living presence in me now reigns supreme, and that's the purpose of the memory verse. And my only way forward is to trust the one who loved me enough to give himself for me. And so as a result of the gospel, I have stopped living by willpower and begun to trust him alone. Let me close with this. William Booth was 80 years old when he was asked the secret of his success founding the Salvation Army. He said, and I quote, I will tell you a secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do for the poor of London, I have made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. This is what Jesus does. This is his work. 
This is his redemptive power. This is his resurrection power. And so I ask, will you give him your passion today so that he can recreate it and renew it in his image? Whether it is submerged in pain from the past or out of control with addictions and character defects, will you give him your passion? For if you will, he will meet you in the midst of it and take you as you are. And over time, as you continue to surrender to him, transform the brokenness into something beautiful, a resurrected life that is personally yours that you could never imagine. May it be so today for all of us and for the rest of our lives. Amen.